Yes, you, you lucky sausage. You found the Talk Marketing Show, where the League of Marvelous Marketeers give up everything you need to be more successful in your business. Ladies and gentlemen, may I have your attention, please? Ten, nine, eight, seven, six, Hello there, my name is Martin Henley. This is the Effective Marketing YouTube channel. And if you have spent a second here, you will know that I am on a mission to give you everything you need to be successful in your business. And as far as I'm aware, the only way for you to be successful in your business is to be successful with your sales and your marketing. So not only on this channel am I giving you everything I know about sales and marketing, I'm also dragging in anyone I can find who is prepared to speak to me with relevant experience of sales and marketing to extract from them everything you might need to be successful in your business. So today's guest, according to his LinkedIn profile, has marketing experience going back to 2007, so that's 15 years. But that's interesting because he claims to have 18 years of experience on his website. Now, he also claims on his website to have started in business when he was 12. So I think he might be 30 now with 18 years of experience. That's special, I think. In that time, he has also authored two books, Delivered, A No-Nonsense Guide to Successful Email Marketing, and Opened, Great Subject Lines for Higher Email Open Rates. He is a long-suffering Aston Villa fan. I don't think they're suffering terribly right now. He is a stand-up fanatic and geek. Today's guest is Nathan Littleton. Good afternoon, Nathan Littleton. Hey, Martin. It's great to be with you. Looking forward to sharing. Fantastic. I am looking forward to you sharing as well. Now, people don't need to know that it took us three attempts to get this far, but I think we did better on the third attempt, didn't we? I think it was perfect, Martin. Fantastic. <laughs> okay, good. So, this is really interesting. Your specialist subject is email marketing. I'm interested to have a conversation about email marketing, but it feels wrong to me. It feels like a young, a young marketing entrepreneur, speaker, author shouldn't be driving with email marketing, which everyone knows died when Facebook came along. Then it died again when Twitter came along and it died then again when, I don't know, YouTube came along and it died when Snapchat came along and it's got to be dead now, TikTok's come along. So what on earth are you doing with this old man's marketing tool, email? <laughs> well, I mean, I've got more gray hairs than my age would suggest, but the reason I constantly promote the idea of email marketing is because it continues to work. And it wouldn't be the first time that someone has said to me, Email marketing's dead, isn't it? Well, the numbers don't lie. The stats are there, and I'll continue to promote it for as long as it continues to work. In fact, I was at an event a few years ago where I was on like a Q&A panel. And on that panel, people had the opportunity to put post-it notes on a whiteboard that said, uh, that gave a question. And then one of the panelists would answer the question. And one of the post-it notes said exactly that thing. Email marketing is dead. I mean, that's not even a question, right? That's just a statement. That's designed to, to challenge whoever is there. But of course, yep. I was the email marketing expert on the panel. So the question came to me. And 
I wanted to find out a little bit more about this, try and understand what it was that led someone to, to putting this question, if you like, on the board. And I spoke to the guy in the room and he said, oh, actually, this was uh, a, a marketing message that he had seen from uh, a company that were promoting Facebook chatbots, messenger chatbots that were kind of all the rage four or five years ago. And it surprised me really that this was coming coming out from one of these companies. So I wanted to dig a bit a bit further. And as it turned out, email marketing is dead was the subject line of the email campaign that they were using to promote their messenger chatbots. Isn't that amazing that you've got a company who are advertising this brand new marketing method and even they're using email marketing and suddenly slating email marketing at the same time to try and get their message across. So yes. it isn't the first time I've heard it. And I think it's it's something that is a common misconception, but I'll continue to use it for as long as it continues to work. Okay, good. No, really good, because I think you're right. Um, it continues to work. There's no two ways about it. Um, and I think there's a broader thing. It, you know, email marketing is direct marketing. So it's like saying direct marketing is dead. Well, if direct marketing is dead, then why are Facebook, um, WhatsApp, LinkedIn all developing and promoting these direct marketing platforms, you know? So, yeah, so I think it's interesting. We'll get into the bones of that. How old are you? Are you 30? Is that how old you are? Uh, I'm 31. So maybe my LinkedIn profile needs an update on the number of years experience. But yeah, I started uh, officially in 2003 with a little website design business in my bedroom. Right. Do we need to, like, I'm, am I interested? Am I I'm interested, Let's, but my interest might be a little bit different from um, the BBC's. <laughs> I think, because I'm old, I think young people are stupid. <laughs> <laughs> okay. and, and I think they don't know how to interact with the world properly, and they don't know they're born, and they've got terrible taste in music, and duh, 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 duh. Interestingly, somebody I spoke to yesterday for one of these said, look, you need to find some young people to get on. I don't really think those things, but I am interested to know what motivates like a 12-year-old to start their own. It was web design that you were doing, was it? It was, yeah. Yeah. So what's the motivation there when you're 12 to, to start a web design business? And this well, was 2003. To... It wasn't easy to build websites in 2003. No, it wasn't. It was HTML code, PHP code, things that I've long since forgotten, if I'm honest, because there are any easier ways of doing that if you're just looking to build a website for a business. I think I'd have to agree with you on the taste in music. I think most of the things in the chart I don't understand, and I'm 31. Yep. Uh, and yeah, I think when I was 12, my key driver was my friends were earning some money from paper rounds, and I had an opportunity using skills that I'd already learned to be able to build a business. So the websites that I was making when I was 11 or, or just turned 12 were websites for 12-year-olds. So they had games, jokes, funny stories. And of course, those same skills that I had to build those websites were exactly the same skills as people were using to build websites for businesses. You just needed a little bit of extra marketing knowledge to go on top of that. So I learned everything that I needed from blogs. And if I'm honest, that was before YouTube was really a thing. So it was mostly blogs that were showing people how, how to build websites for businesses that would work. And that meant I had an opportunity to earn a bit more money and eventually a lot more money than my friends who had jobs in 
uh, doing paper rounds and in the local shop. So that was the key driver. Okay. And is it, why weren't you just playing computer games like everybody else? I guess that's the attraction of money, but also I really enjoyed it. There was a reason why I was building websites for myself that was in, that was just having games and jokes and stories on there. And I guess I found that more enjoyable than playing the PlayStation. It's not to say I didn't do those things as well. I still went out with my friends. I still made dens in the forest and stuff like that. Okay. But I had a skill and it was a skill that I genuinely enjoyed doing. It was a, a drive to, to learn something that most 12 year olds weren't doing at that time. And if I could earn some money through it, then that was a perfect cocktail for me. Okay. And was it these, was it a case of you were just earning some money or were you making stupid amounts of money before you'd even left school? Was it one of those stories or is it? Well, when I, I started my first website, I think I sold for £80, which isn't a huge amount of money. It was for a, a little motorcycle secondhand dealer. Uh, and if I'm honest, that was probably something where I was still testing the water with, can I make websites for businesses? But it's no different to the things that I do now. I get better at what I do and the quality of my work and my portfolio gets better. So I get better clients. So uh, before I'd finished school, I was then taking on 2,000 and 3,000 pound projects and then even selling into the school and selling to the council websites for local initiatives that they had and was even recruited by the school. I was the youngest ever council employee in the country teaching web design to seven uh, to year seven and eight students. So it started as a hobby that developed into a business. And then I think I became an entrepreneur. It's in the loosest sense of the word, I would say. But I became an entrepreneur because I was trying to find opportunities around what I could do and what I could build a business out of. By the time I was 15 or 16, I didn't care whether it was websites. I didn't care whether I was selling widgets or washing machines. That's when I had what I'd call a business book. I knew that when I left school, my career would be as a business owner rather than having a job and being employed. Okay, so no, you didn't go into sixth form or HNDs or anything like that. You went straight into working for yourself? Well, I did go to sixth form, but I didn't go to university. I had the op opportunity to do so. By that point, I'd maybe let my schoolwork dip a little because that's the thing, I guess, if you're running a business at 12 to 16 is you have to balance your schoolwork. You have to balance social time with your friends. And sometimes that balance isn't quite right. I mean, yeah. I'm 31 and I still don't always get the balance right between doing client work, doing sales, doing marketing, doing this, that and the other. It's, it's, I guess, the curse of the entrepreneur, but it's a nice problem to have, I think. And it was an issue that I had then, but I was quickly becoming disillusioned with school because I knew that hey, me getting my uh, a CV together to be able to get a job isn't something I'm going to do. So mm. the balance then started to tip uh, in favor of me concentrating on the business and trying to build it up. So I went to sick form and ended up pulling out a sick form in the second year because it felt pointless to me. I wanted to build a business. And I think it's quite trendy now with people like... Um... People like Seth Godin doing their online MBA and what's his name? That mouthy New Yorker that I don't like. Gary oh, Joe Rogan. No, Gary Vaynerchuk. Oh, Gary Vaynerchuk. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Mm -hmm. So these people are openly saying, don't waste your time and energy going to, to university. But it wasn't, that wasn't the mood 13, 14 years ago. So, okay, so it's interesting. It's really interesting. And how did that transition then happen? Did you... You, you stopped going to sixth form partway through the second year. Did you immediately go out and look for an office? Were you working from home? It was like, 
how did you kind of transition from getting up and going to school or college every day and then actually just being employed or not employed well, but running your own business? Yeah, I was working from home and there were other people doing it at the same time, but I'd like to think I was a little bit ahead of the curve when it came to using freelancers as team members. I took on a, a big project that eventually went massively tits up, I'll be honest, because uh, the company went bust and I had a huge number of people to pay, but it was a project that was lar far larger than I could do on my own. So I quickly identified that, you know, I'm going to need some help with this. I'm going to need people who have skills that I don't have in certain types of, of web programming and things like that. Um, so I built up a freelance network of 20 to 25 people who I could call on who were running their own businesses, they were doing their own things, working as freelancers, but they had specialist skills that I didn't have. Uh, I would brought them into this one project. It didn't quite go right for, for the reason that I'd mentioned, but it didn't mean that the system was wrong. It didn't mean that bringing in freelancers was wrong. I just needed to be a bit smarter about the contracts and things like that because you can't really enter into a contract when you're you know, that age. So I needed to be smarter about things and, and take deposits, do things in the right way. But I was still learning. I was young, I was building a business, but I still had so many of those lessons to learn and a few things to fail at before I understood the lessons from those two. Um, yeah. So I was working from home, but I had people all around the world, most of them in the UK, but some in other countries too, who were helping me with projects and they were delivering on my behalf. Okay, cool. And your parents, were they supportive of this? Were they, I mean, how supportive were they? Were, were they were they pushy parents or were they you need to go to university parents? No, they were supportive of it. Um, I mean, my mum, in fact, both my parents are employed. My mum in particular, though, I mean, she still asks me on occasion when I'm going to get a proper job. Uh, <laughs> to, to her mind, the idea of running a business is is unusual of course it is when you don't have that in your own background if you don't have it in your family's background that's a strange thing i think a lot of business owners and and people who work for themselves it's difficult to get across what the challenges are and what the potential opportunities are to family members who might may be employed who don't really understand that they don't understand the, the challenges that you have and the reason why you're going for what you're doing and I think that was the case with my mum. I don't fault her for it. Um, she was supportive, and I'm very persuasive when when I talk about here's the reason why I'm doing what I'm doing, uh, and here's the reason I won't be going to university and why I want to make something for myself. Okay. Okay, you are still three years younger than I was when I started my business, and I didn't have a clue. There is something, somebody very clever, and I can't remember who it is, but somebody very clever said... When you work for other people, that's your opportunity to learn how to run a business. Um, but obviously, you've never done that. So how on earth do you know how to run a business? Well, I, I had the freedom to be able to make mistakes because I suppose that is the advantage of when you live at home. You don't have a mortgage or rent to pay. You don't have a car to run. I had a good five years there before I got my, my first car where I could make mistakes and it didn't really matter. Uh, because there was no risk there. So if I made £100 from a project or I made £1,000 for a project or £10,000 for a project, it didn't really matter. All it was was lost opportunity if I didn't charge enough. But what it did mean was that I had yeah, plenty of freedom to, if things went wrong, hey, it wasn't the end of the world. So those lessons came with far less risk. Yes. Okay. I mean, it sounds ideal when you put it like that. I can't. Yeah. 
I mean, it's it's a great story. It's a really great story, and it must have been a great experience. I think I'm a little bit jealous, <laughs> but um, <laughs> but yeah, I wish I'd um, I wish I'd made my business mistakes when I knew that I'd, as long as I got to the table at five o'clock, my fish fingers and chips would be there for my tea every day. You know that. Sounds ideal. And you know what? It was fish fingers and chips as well. <laughs> <laughs> Excellent. And baked beans, I would hope, for the fibre. Oh, yes. Yes. But never let the baked beans touch the fish fingers. That was my rule. No, you're insane. <laughs> beans on the fish fingers. Come on. Okay, good. Okay, cool. So that's interesting. But we're here today to talk about your specialist subject. Your specialist subject is email marketing. Um, so as you know, there's only five questions. First question, how are you qualified to talk to us about email marketing? Second question is, um, who do you work with? How do you add value in their lives? Third question is, what is your recommendation for people who want to get better at email marketing? The fifth question is, what should people read? And the fifth question is, who can you throw under the bus who might endure or maybe even enjoy to have a conversation like this with me? So question number one, how are you qualified to talk to us about email marketing? Well, I'm a big believer in practice over theory, and I send more than a million emails each and every year. So I, I get firsthand experience of, of exactly how that works. In fact, that's nearing 2 million emails each and every year, because I work with a number of clients where I manage the email campaigns for them. And I get to see what works. I get to try subject lines and see what difference it makes to the open rate. I get to try different copy and experiment with things and see what really makes a difference when it comes to either a sales campaign or a newsletter campaign that is going to work for my clients. So by sending that many emails a year, I get the chance to be able to do that. And hey, I've been sending emails for nine on 11, 12 years now in a, a formal sense with email marketing. So yeah, I know what works. I've seen what's changed. And I've also seen how it stacks up against other marketing mediums. So we were talking a little bit about that earlier. And I just think if I look back to five or six years ago, when people put so much effort so much energy and in fact in some cases quite a bit of money into building up let's say facebook fan pages you built up the likes there you had let's say a thousand or two thousand fans and the idea there was that you were building an audience that you could communicate with fast forward two or three years and then facebook moved the goalposts and decide that hey your message can't get in front of those people unless you pay for the ads so your entire marketing strategy there through that one medium is dependent on one corporation's whim the same applies when it comes to other forms of paid advertising, other things where it's one business that controls it, it's one platform. The advantage I think you have with email marketing is that it should be pretty safe for a number of years to come. Yes, there are the odd thing that, that comes in like GDPR and there might be something else in the future, but that's a societal change, that's a political change that isn't going to impact what you're doing just because one company changes what it wants based on how it's going to drive its own revenue. So I'm a big believer that you should be operating in your own playground rather than somebody else's. And email marketing is a great way to do that. Wow. Genius. It's completely true. I was one of those Muppets, like between 2007, to, probably till I stopped running the effective marketing properly, maybe 2014, where I was saying to people, like, if you're doing Facebook advertising, pay for people to be fans of your page because what you're buying is the opportunity to talk to those people forever. And then literally, like you say, like the, the gates closed, Facebook decided they wanted money for that. And I think that's fraud. And I say this to my groups. I, I teach digital marketing. So when we talk about social media, I, I say this to people because they sold for whatever it was, those four or five years, the opportunity to speak to these people 
and then they sold it again like so and so it's like oh no you you paid to to speak to these people forever but now you're gonna have to pay to speak to them every time you want to speak to them you know so i think that's fraud and i think you're right okay good i think you're 100 percent right that is the issue and then also these other platforms are going to come and go you know so facebook it seems to me is struggling now like definitely they're not handling the threat from from apple very well I think they're struggling, and I think I, I don't know. I think they may they've not also, be around for. Yeah, sorry, they've also struggled to keep up. Um, you mentioned about young people earlier. I mean, I still use Facebook. I still like it. I still have all of my friends and my colleagues on there. It doesn't seem as attractive to people younger than me, what we'd call Generation Z, as it was for those that those age groups when I was growing up. Facebook came in just as I was leaving school, so. It was it was a big thing. I mean, I even remember Friends Reunited. So if you wanted to stay in touch with the people you went to school with, you'd register on Friends Reunited and then find that only four or five people from your school are actually registered. Yeah. Whereas because Facebook had this critical mass, hey, it just replaces those things because everyone's on there anyway. And it was it was good, but it isn't as attractive to people of that age now. There are other things that Facebook haven't exactly caught up with. And I think you're right. I think Facebook are struggling a little bit. It's why they've invested in Instagram and WhatsApp, because maybe they see for themselves that the platform is maybe dying a little bit. It's They need to keep up, and they need to keep up much quicker. They do. So you're right about email, and you own that list. You know, Once you have built that list, that list belongs to you. No corporation is going to take that away or demand that you pay more for it. There are issues with email marketing and there is an issue that you seem to be addressing head on with kind of your messaging. I can't remember. I've closed the window now, but it was your message is something about build credibility through. What is that? What is that tagline? So it's, it's build credibility, win business. And I think credibility is the fundamental word. So there's a program that I created called Credibility Marketing because I don't think you can get your message across and see it as, and, and for people to see it as compelling if you don't have that credibility in the first place. Okay. And it is the cornerstone to the, the stuff that I, I talk about with email marketing because I always reference the example that, you know, we have lots of conversations within our businesses where we hope that sales will come from them. But there are loads of reasons why people don't buy from us. It might be that they don't have the budget. It's just not the right time. There are loads of reasons why. So what happens in six months time or 12 months time when they do need your services, they do need your products and they're looking for someone? What are they going to do? Are they going to go on LinkedIn or ask a friend for a recommendation? Or are they going to go to the person who is stayed in touch with them regularly and consistently with high quality educational information that surrounds that specific challenge or opportunity that they're looking to fix. I like to think it's the latter and the, the stats would prove that. You have an opportunity to be on one side or the other of that decision in six months time when they're looking for what you offer. And if you're staying in touch with people, if you're credible with what you're saying, if people trust you, then you're the person they'll go to. Um, the credibility marketing idea comes from being top of mind. What is it that's going to make you top of mind with your audience? An example that I give there is, let's say, for, for example, that you're looking to create a nature documentary. You're looking for a narrator. Who's the first person that you think of? Who is it that you would want to narrate your nature documentary? Are you asking me? I am, yeah. Who would it be? <laughs> I'd like to see... Um... 
I mean, I know what you want me to say, so I'm not going to say <laughs> okay. I would like to see Tommy Ball narrate that um, nature documentary. Tommy Ball, okay. From Cannon uh, and Ball, I... long before your time, man, long before your time. <laughs> it is. Um, it is. Oh, what about those those brothers, the Thingy brothers? You want me to say um, Attenborough. So let's say Attenborough. I don't need to derail your story. It's fine. Attenborough. I want Attenborough <laughs> to, to narrate my story. Of course you do, and and for what it's worth, I think Attenborough would be much better than than Ball or uh, or was it Anne and Deck? I think you were going to say then. No, Anne and Deck, the brothers. To me, to you, to me, to you. Like when oh, you were growing up, brothers. the Chuckle Brothers. Yeah, that's what I was going to say. Okay, yeah, that'd be hilarious. I mean, I would like to see a nature documentary narrated by the Chuckle Brothers. I have to say, it's uh, a pigeon. It's a pigeon. It's a pigeon. Yeah, exactly. Uh, but I think you'd agree Attenborough would be your your first choice. I mean, surely he's a he's a, a national icon. Um, well, I think he would yeah. draw audience of his own. Do you know what I mean? It would be um, a, a marriage made in heaven. He would, yeah. And, and the the point that I want to make with that is that he would be top of mind for most people when it comes to that specific need. Uh, and we can extend that to what we do within our own businesses as well. What is it that's going to make you top of mind when someone needs what you offer? Yeah. And I mean, more than that, if you are messaging them regularly, emailing them regularly, maybe they're not even looking for somebody because they've got a reminder that you are there and you do this thing. And so, you know, that's that's what I think of not top of mind necessarily, but front of mind is, you know, that, you know, that's somewhere in mind sort of space. That's not the issue I want to answer, uh, ask you about. What I want to what I want to say is this isn't even a question. What I want to say is um, email marketing is the least credible form of marketing. Everybody knows that email marketing is a crime. Everybody knows that email marketing is harmful, and everybody knows that people who do email marketing. Oh, scum. I don't know why I'm in such a strong <laughs> mood today, but this is it. So this is my point. And, and when I teach email marketing, this is what I say to people. I am completely unaware, completely unaware. I've never opened a newspaper with the headline that says email injures, kills, maims. Like no email ever actually physically harmed anyone. But it's on a list of things that are the most heinous crimes, the crimes that upset people the most. The other one is using your mobile phone when you drive your car. Now, that is dangerous. I'm not saying that's not dangerous. But people feel they have the right to be violently objected, objective, objected, to object violently to people yeah. using their mobile phones when they drive their cars and people who send emails. It's the least credible form of marketing. So why would you be involved in trying to build credibility using the least credible form of marketing? That's the question. I mean, I'd, I'd argue that the least credible is, and I've had three today already, is robocallers where you get uh, an unsolicited phone call. That's when you're genuinely interrupting someone's day. I take your point there. People, if they feel like it's a, an email that they haven't signed up for, that they haven't asked to receive then yeah, of course, I could see why people wouldn't like it. That's not the philosophy I teach. We only want to be emailing people who want to hear from us. It's also the reason why I don't think unsubscribes are a bad thing. If someone unsubscribes, it's either not the right time for them and they don't see it being in the future, or they feel like it's something that they haven't signed up for. So 
with every unsubscribe that you get, the quality of your list improves. The quality of your list is improved with people who would be in a position and would want to buy from you in the future. That's the reason we're doing email marketing in the first place is to build a captive audience who do think that we're credible. Um, like I said, I mean, when I get these unsolicited phone calls, that's when you're genuinely interrupting someone's day. That's the least credible, in my opinion. With an email, it sits in their inbox and they can choose to open it or they can choose to delete it. What's going to make them open that email? They're going to see the name in there, who it's from, and they're going to decide whether they recognize that person, whether they know, like, and trust them. And they're going to look at the subject line and decide whether that is interesting and compelling enough that they actually want to open it rather than delete it. So when it comes to <clears throat> sending email campaigns and creating lists, we want people to be on the list that want to be there. And we want them to be receiving our emails because they want to receive them. <laughs> That's the key to it. And I think the best compliment I ever get from a client where we've sent newsletters for them is when they forward me emails that they've received from their own audience. And there's always a key phrase in there that sits right at the top of my list of the nicest comments that I receive. It is when one of their audience members says, yours is one of the few newsletters that I actually read. That's the sweet spot. Because you're right, people are on the back foot. People don't want to be uh, sending emails that people don't want to receive. So you have to provide enough value that people do want to receive them. If people can give you comments like that, yours is one of the few newsletters they actually read, then it means you've struck that sweet spot by targeting the right audience and providing the right content to that audience where it speaks to the challenges and opportunities that they have. No, you're shirking the issue. <laughs> Everyone knows okay. that emails are dangerous. And this is why there has to be regulation about the sending of emails. You know, this is why I can't remember what the penalties were. I mean, it was horrifying. It was, it was like a percentage of turnover or something mm. is it was it 20 percent of turnover like was, I don't the, think it was that but it was pretty high was mm. it 10 percent of turnover or i don't was, know the exact and number. it was an amount of money because when i was running the my business properly like an agency looking for clients running courses or doing all that stuff we were sending thirty thousand emails a, a week or something and um you know, it worked. It wasn't very complicated. It was literally, there's a training happening. It's happening near you. This is the cost. This is the thing. And, you know, people would book and that was fine. Um, but, yeah, I'm kind of joking, but I'm kind of not. Like, this is, I'm not joking. This is seen as, like, the worst thing a marketer could do is sell, is send, like, I mean, yours, it sounds to me like you're only doing subscriber type stuff, which is interesting. Okay, let's, let's cut to the, to the point. The point is, if you follow the letter of the law in terms of the regulation, email marketing is certainly unviable, is the word I'm going to use, and actually nearly impossible. So I'm out of touch a little bit with what the regulations are, but I know one of the regulations is that you have to get the, I mean, you can tell me if I'm right or if I'm wrong, but one of them is that you have to get consent from your list every 12 months, from every person on your list every 12 months. No, not strictly true. No. Not <clears throat> so that doesn't apply to doesn't apply to email marketing. It's about the the possession of data. You have to remember that GDPR covers far more than just sending emails. It yes. covers 
even things like CCTV images and whether you, how long you keep those. So there's a lot to GDPR that, you know, we don't have to apply every single principle to email marketing. Um, I mean, you mentioned something there around, yes, it is subscription only. That is something that I will push to the hill because if you're buying lists, if you're sending emails to people who haven't asked for them, not only is it far more unlikely to work, but also, well, it's a lot of hard work for very little result. The percentages don't lie there that your responses, your engagement, and ultimately your your sales will be much higher from a list who have asked to hear from you than they are from a completely cold list. And also it goes against the email marketing services, their terms and conditions. You can't use those to send emails to people who haven't asked for them. And it's also the reason why when GDPR came in, there was a lot of first made over actually quite a small thing because if you were doing things right in the first place, if you were only emailing people that had asked to hear from you, if you were only sending them what you'd said you'd send them, then you didn't have anything to worry about. Nothing actually changed with GDPR when it came in. Okay. And I'm not talking about just GDP, um, GDPR. I think I'm talking about like, because there have been regulation. I mean, we don't have to dwell on this because you're doing it the right way. But I do think... I mean, I think people don't like receiving email marketing. Okay, you're, you're, you're hitting subscribers only. People like don't like doing email marketing because they see it as spammy. Um, but you're saying it's not spammy because um, you're giving away educational content each time you email something. Okay, then. So let's talk about the way that you are doing it. It takes a lot of time and energy and money to build subscriber lists, question mark. Okay, so I think it can do, and it depends how quickly you want to build your list, but you could, you know, if you had a hundred of the right people on your list, you'd get a much better result than if you had a thousand of the wrong people on your list. It's also another reason why buying lists ends up being a bit of an issue. So building a list in the right way, where you're offering an incentive in the first instance, that incentive in the form of a lead magnet should be qualifying your audience through the title or through the content that is in there. If it speaks to the specific challenges or opportunities that your audience has, you stand a better chance of getting the right people on your list in the first place. And you can segment them by those challenges or opportunities and how they're relevant to the products and services that you offer. But you're offering an incentive to join your list you're making it clear that they can unsubscribe at any time if it's not right for them anymore, but you're going to continue to serve them with great value content. And it's only by doing that that you build a list in a way that actually is quite inexpensive to build. Now, if you wanted to accelerate the growth of your list, then the right thing to do is to use the paid options that are available to promote your lead magnet. So to touch on what I said earlier, you can take them out of Facebook's playground and other social media platforms playgrounds, and you can add them to your own list. That's how you get what ends up being quite an inexpensive way of building your list because you can then continue to market to them for the price of whatever a MailChimp or an active campaign fee is right now, very little compared to what you'd be paying to reach that audience with Facebook ads. So promote your lead magnet, invite them to join your email list, and then you've got a constant stream where your list is building. How much it costs you to build your list is dependent on how much you want to throw at it. The principle behind paid advertising, it should be that I'd spend a million pounds every month, every week, every day, if I could, as long as I found a formula for the Facebook ads that meant that for every million pounds that I earn, I got five million pounds back. That's what paid advertising should be. 
Now, it's easier said than done. I'm by no means an expert in Facebook ads, and I'd like to get better at that, which is why I get other people to do those for me. But it should be that you are building a list of people who you can market to consistently. And however quickly you want to build your list is how quickly you throw the money at the right system to be able to do that. Okay, good. Good. I don't, I, I just want to... Do I want to? I do want to. Like, so for me, it seems that the re regulations, like, so I, I I can't tell you which regulation it is. I'm out of date. You know, if I'd done my research, I'd be able to quote you the regulation. We don't need, we're not having that kind of conversation. But I'm pretty sure you have to get consent, however people end up on your list, every 12 months. So bear with me. If that is the case, like a decent open rate for it. So you send out an email every 12 months that says, hey, guys, we've been working really hard delivering you great content, blah, 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 blah. Just need to check it make sure that you're happy to stay on our list. Please respond yes or no or whatever it is or tick the box or, or do whatever it is. The issue is that if 10% of your people, if your open rate is 10%, yours is going to be higher because it's subscription-only lists. Let's say it's 30% actually open them and then 10% of those actually engage with the email and respond to say, yes, I want it, then even in that instance, it works harder. The calculation I normally use is 10% and 10%. But if that is the case and you are doing that, you are essentially burning 90% of your data every year if you don't get that response. And that's what makes it really difficult. So even like you've mentioned MailChimp, like under, I don't know if it's GDPR, I don't know which regulation it is, but one regulation makes it illegal, or like you can't call a policeman, but you're not supposed to send the data abroad, which is, of course is what you're doing if you're using MailChimp because it's going straight to the States. And, you know, the, the European regulators have an issue with the US um, government having access to all of this stuff anyway. So I think that I think that well, I think a few things about the, the regulation. It's overly onerous. I don't think anyone who's actually doing the, the most hideous kind of email marketing even cares because the government aren't going to be able to find them. You know, they'll be sitting wherever they are sitting in North Macedonia or somewhere. Um, North Macedonia is a perfectly nice place to sit, by the way. It's, it's all good. Um, but, they, but it's overly onerous and then it's not enforceable. And what I say to people about spam, I don't know how you encounter spam, but if somebody decides, it doesn't matter what the definition of spam is, if somebody feels like it's spam, it's spam. Like it's, if, it's, if it's spam in the eyes of the receiver, then it's spam. But what I say to people is it's about how you respond to that. So when I was sending 30,000 emails a week, we would get four or five people now, my list was an abomination. You know, it was, you don't even want to know where this list came from. I don't know where it came from. You know, it was an abomination. But we'd get four or five people clearly having a terrible day and they would come to us, we never subscribe for this. You're sending us this junk. You send this every week, blah, 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 blah. But what I like to do is put my, myself in the, in the shoes of that person. It's like, how shitty a day must you be having to be so upset by the fact that you've received this email? Do you know what I mean? And then if you, by extension, you, you say, okay, now you've got the opportunity to respond. So I had like a really nice little response, which was like, oh, I'm really sorry if this caused you any offense or um, what was the other word? Offense or 
like hardship, but not hardship. You know, we send out these, we're on a mission to help people and blah, 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 blah. And of course, if you'd like us to, we can take you off the database. But if you prefer to keep, not even that. It's like, we have taken you off the database. And, and that was fine. You'd never hear from people ever again. But for, for the idea that somebody is going to sustain that rage for the 12 months it might take you to go through the process of reporting this, of turning up for hearings, of all of this stuff is just insane. So that's what I think about the regulation is that it's, overly onerous it's too much and it's unenforceable and it's not enforced so it doesn't matter so it doesn't make your job any easier if you're doing email marketing and everyone has this sense of that i suppose well to be absolutely clear i mean the 12 month thing isn't something i'm aware of it's also certainly not something that i i practice um there's no need to there might be something in there about if you're if you haven't communicated with someone for for 12 months i mean there was a similar thing in place and has been for years from the email marketing service providers that says if you haven't emailed someone in two years they shouldn't be on your list and that's yes. actually again just practice rather than it being a term and a term and condition in their uh, their systems because if you haven't emailed them in two years there's a good chance that when you email them again it's probably going to bounce and your bounce rates will be high the list is old it's almost better to start from scratch in that first instance so yes. you have a responsibility to your list to do the right thing uh irrespective of any regulations i'll maintain what i said before that when gdpr came in for those people who were doing things right in the first place had nothing to worry about and they still don't you're right that it doesn't really get enforced either i don't think these things were put in place to target joe public who has a little bit three thousand people on his list and he's sending an email once a week i think this was for the bigger corporation What I was saying is, I think this applies to lots of marketing, is actually the key to direct marketing, which is what we're talking about here, is, is, having, is, is having a sense of how to approach people, even if it's completely unsolicited. Like I started my career cold calling, selling advertising. You know, that's what I did. But what I learned was how to approach people in a completely inoffensive way. And if somehow they did manage to be offended by that, I learned the skill of being able to extricate myself in, do you know what I mean? Just to be, yeah. so I think the key to this is what you're saying is you shouldn't be guided by the regulation. If you are engaged in direct marketing, you just need to not be a dick. You just need to be able to know how to approach people. I mean, we're going to get into what it is that you're actually doing, but it sounds to me like you're doing that adding value before they're even a customer kind of approach. Um, which nobody should be able to be offended by. Here's what I really think, is I think that email marketing is, according to some data, you know, the data that will represent everything, but it's hugely effective. My business changed overnight almost when I implemented email marketing. Um, and I think the regulation stops people from doing email marketing when I know it's probably the most effective thing that they can do and certainly the most valuable thing they could do in terms of building value into their marketing is to have like a, a really good email list. You're not finding that or you are finding that. Do you have to convince people to do email marketing or are they up for it? Generally, people are up for it. I think you're right. There are some misconceptions that people have in, in a similar way to some of the things we've been talking about today. Uh, 
mostly around their own response to emails that they've received. So they think that if they were to use email marketing, they'll have the same response that they've had. And the truth is that if your emails are coming across as spammy, if you're getting lots of unsubscribes, it's a sign that you need to improve what you're doing rather than it being a sign that email marketing itself doesn't work. And there are plenty of ways to do it in the right way. As I said, uh, mentioned previously, the subscriber model where you're giving people value. The key thing there is it's the giving of the value that earned you the right to be able to send a sales message. Now, I mean, even being offended by a sales message to me feels like a strange thing. However, if you have a sales message that is followed, uh, that follows uh, chunks of value in the form of blog posts, in the form of articles, in the forms of stories, where there's a message that can be gleaned from it, that again, speaks to the challenges and opportunities that they have. If the sales message that comes at the end of that is a way that you can shortcut some of the things that you've been talked about with a paid product or service that will help you to make the most of it, I find that a very difficult thing to get offended by. And I think it it would be a huge challenge to be putting that across and finding that people are offended by it and, and are wanting to unsubscribe. Like I said, the value that you give is what earned you the right to be able to send those sales messages. A hundred percent. And I'm with you. Okay. But this also is, I told you I had issues, didn't I, before we started. So we're just <laughs> working through my issues. Um, <clears throat> Also, if you're building subscriber lists, that's not without its issues. Now, don't judge me, but let me just tell you my recent experience I had is I started to build a list. I produced a course. I was going to sell the course online and, and I started to build a list and then COVID kind of happened and people were still going on the list, but I wasn't doing anything about it. By the time I decided to do something about it, I think I had about a thousand people on the list and I hit the send button. It was with MailChimp. And nine, it was, I had about 950 people on the list. 900 of those went away immediately, not valid emails, or I wasn't allowed to send, or something. So I don't know. So what I'm saying is even building the list through a subscriber model isn't without its challenges, I think, is what I'm saying. So do you get involved in building those lists or do you work exclusively with people who have those kinds of lists already? It, it's about 50-50. There are, there are a number of people I work with who already have their lists. Some of them are old, in which case we need to go through a verification process. So I use a tool called MailerCheck, which is made by the same people who make MailerLite, which is a, a great tool. Uh, and it will verify the email addresses for you. It's incredibly inexpensive, but it then means that you reduce the chance when you send that first email of getting bounces, of getting uh, emails that aren't valid for one reason or another. So that's the first step that you can take. The, the question I'd ask you there, Martin, with, with your list that you had there is, if you've got 900 out of 950 people on that list that those emails didn't go through for one reason, what those reasons were? Is it that they hadn't been emailed for a long time so they so that they bounced? Was it that MailChimp wouldn't let uh, you import them because they were info addresses or things like that? There will be a number of reasons there, but the, the, the messages that you get, the statistics that you get as to why those hadn't gone through, We'll be able to tell you a lot about what the issue is. Yeah, they were collected through a Mailchimp form, so straight into Mailchimp. So Mailchimp knew whether they'd been collected through their forms. Mm -hmm. I don't remember what it was. I, I think, I mean, I think it was probably twelve months 
maybe it had been a couple of years since I started the list, and I don't know, it was growing out, what's that, a thousand in two years, 52 weeks, I don't know, what is it, 40 a month or something. So maybe some of them had been there for two years, I don't know. My, I remember what I was feeling is that, that MailChimp were charging me for this, and then when I came to use it, it wasn't, and you know that's what upsets me. These these organisations do upset me, but how do you avoid? For ex- okay, so there's another issue. That's one issue, actually knowing that the emails are going to be valid when you come to use them. Another issue is, if I was sorry, did you know this was going to be challenging? Oh, I'm all <laughs> up be. for it. Oh, challenging. Okay, good. So another issue is, I might argue that. If you, we call them lead magnets. So if people are signing up to be on your list, I've only got one more issue on this and then we can move on. Mm-hmm. But if people are signing up to be on your list for something that's free, then are they the sort of people who are actually going to spend money with you or are they the sort of people who just like to get things for free? Well, it's, it's a great point. I think there will be some people in there that, that won't ever buy a product or a service from you. And the purpose of providing them continuing value after that and knowing what your value ladder is. I'm a big believer in a value ladder model where you have, you know, if someone has £10 to spend with you, do you have something that you can offer them in the form of a, a mini course or a book or an ebook? If someone has £50 to spend or £100 to spend, right up to if they've got 50000 or £100,000 to spend, what do you have to offer them? And they will qualify themselves into those categories if your sales messaging is as clear and as consistent as it can be. So if you have a value ladder, if you continue to provide value on an ongoing basis consistently, then what you're looking for is the cream to rise to the top. And those people who, as you suggest, some people will just want the ebook and they won't buy from you in the future, well, there's a good chance they'll unsubscribe. And again, that's why I don't think unsubscribes are such a bad thing because those people probably wouldn't have bought from you anyway. And hey, if they see a message from you in the future, they might opt in again, that's fine. But with every unsubscribe, the quality of your list improves. Those people, if they wouldn't have bought from you in the first place, means that you can concentrate on the people who will. 100%. Okay, good answer. Um, And I suppose it's all part of the customer journey, isn't it? They need to know, they need to be aware of you, then they need to have a deeper awareness of the value, exactly what it is, what it's going to cost, all of those things. So maybe you are always taking somebody from a free position to a bought position. That's fine. Okay, third challenge on this question of building lists. Photographers. Photographers. Okay. Now, I am a photographer. I've got a camera. I don't know if you can see my surf photography in the background. I really dig to take uh, photographs. I'm a photographer. Photographers are a pain in the ass. (laughs) So one of my clients was, um, I don't know why I'm so bullshit just calling people names today. But um, one of my clients was running a camera rental business in the UK. And I'm not over-exaggerating the point where he had lead magnets set up. He was building databases, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. People would sign up for his stuff. Photographers would sign up for his his content, his magnets, whatever they were. Um, and within three email sends, they would be reporting him as spam. Now, I know that photographers are a particular breed of weird people who who feel like this, like they're being spammed, even if they only signed up for something as recently as three weeks or three months ago. Um, but there's no there's no 
catering for how weird people's attitudes are. Do you know what I mean? And, and how weird they're prepared to behave. So, so what about that? What about what about people reporting you for spam? Does it just not happen in your world? It sounds unlikely. There's the odd one, of course there is, just in the same way that there's the odd unsubscribe. You know, there are a number of reasons why people report the emails that they receive as spam. In many cases, it's that they don't remember signing up for it, or it just isn't relevant to what where they're at right now. And so many of the challenges you've talked about here, and I think they're all valid ones, so many of them can be fixed by doing one of, uh, I'd say, probably three things. The first is consistency. So if the quality of your list goes down because you haven't emailed in a year or two years, well, the way to fix that is by sending more consistently. Similarly, if you aren't getting the results you're looking for in terms of the sales messages that you're sending, there's a good chance that you're not sending enough value consistently, which earns you the right to be able to send those sales messages. So that's the, the first point there. I think the second is, and this is probably the key one, tell people what you're going to do and then do what you've said you're going to do. And that's about the content that you're sending out. It's about how regularly you're sending out. It's just about managing expectations. And I always talk about this when it comes to, you must remember this, you may have even had one on your own website. I certainly did 15 years ago. I had a, a, little, um, a little box on my website that said, sign up for my newsletter. Now, I don't know about you, I've never really been excited by the prospect of a newsletter. But what I would be maybe a little bit more excited by is someone positioning the exact and specific value that would be given within those emails. Because people know what to expect when they see a box that says sign up for our newsletter. It will be probably boring, it won't be very valuable, and it's probably going to be news about them, about changes to their office address or their opening hours and things like that. But actually, if you're sending educational emails, you should be positioning that value on the website where you're asking people to sign up. It manages expectations and it increases the signups in the first instance too. So rather than saying sign up for our newsletter, it'd probably be better to say, enter your email address below and every Friday, I'll send you my top business building tip. If you were a personal trainer, I'll send you my top tip to stay on track over the weekend. It's positioning the exact value that you're going to be offering. It's explaining exactly how often you're going to be sending out. And then you have to be consistent with doing what you've said you're going to do. Uh, so they're the two things. I can't remember what the third one was. I'm sure there was a third one. It will probably come to me. <laughs> yeah, I think there was a third one. Um, what... Um... Sorry, that my video of you isn't great. I'm seeing if there's something I can do about it. I think the okay. issue with this is that I just think that email is just so maligned. You know, I know I've seen the benefit of it. It was a step change. Like we were running trainings every week for Lord knows six, seven years, and it all came from this from this email, um, this email list and this email activity. Um so I know how effective it is, but I don't think people are prepared to invest in it because it is so maligned, because people have this sense that it is spam. Um, and people are receiving so much spam, you know, but I think the real offenders, the people who are sending billions of emails a day, those people don't care about what the regulations are. They don't care about anything. Um, do you want to hear my funny spam story? Yeah, go for it. So I was sitting at my desk one day on a Tuesday morning at about 11.15, an hour and 15 minutes after our email went at 10 o'clock on a Tuesday like they're supposed to. And um, I got a call and this guy said to me, um, 
you spammed us. And I said, okay, well, do you mean that you received one of our highly informative and useful email um, things that we put out? And he's like, yeah, you spammed us. And I'm like, look, I'm really sorry that you feel like that. You know, we're on here just, just to help people. But, you know, not to worry. Um, if you go to the bottom of the email, there's like a subscribe. It's highlighted in blue or purple or whatever color it was. And um, if you hit that, you'll never hear from us again. He's like, no, well, I can't. we can't press that because then you'll know we're here. And anyway, I can't see it. And I'm like, well, it's there and it's highlighted in, in, in blue or, or thingy, whatever. And he says, yeah, no, I can't see it. And I'm like, are you sure? It's like, it's really clear. And he said, no, I can't see it because I'm blind. Oh, okay. And I said, okay, that's, uh, you know, I'm sorry about that. But then if you're blind, who is it who's offended by the email? Who's, the, who's upset by the email? He said, well, it's my wife. And I said, okay, well, put your wife on the phone and, um, you know, I'll explain it to her and then we'll get it resolved that way. And he said, no, she can't come on the phone because she's deaf. <laughs> so I'm not even joking you. I had to go round their house to unsubscribe from the email. I said, Look, I'll just take you off at our end. No, we want to see it. So literally I went round their house to, um, to take them off the email list. And um, that's my funny spam story. And I had a cup of tea and wow, a biscuit I mean, and cause... stuff. And we all ended up being friends. It was fine. <laughs> I mean, there's maybe a whole conversation around accessibility that goes beyond what what I know about how to to make emails accessible. But yeah, um, it's an interesting point. We never know who's on the other end of the emails that we're sending out and what what perhaps issues they have, what challenges they have in their own world. Um, yes, that that make things a little bit different to what we're expecting. Yeah, and I, I mean, I've got another one. Like like what I used to say to people, or what I say to people on the course is that you're marketing to people in their pockets at that very time. So I used to run courses in Malta and famously there's two supermarkets in Malta. There's only 400,000 people live in Malta and basically both of them had been um, sending um, SMS messages at two o'clock in the morning. So they're basically waking up the entire island at two o'clock in the morning with their marketing. And my instance of that was I used to have uh, regular clients and I had my um, invoicing system used to email them the invoices but it would invoice them at two minutes past midnight on the 1st. So 1 January, I got to my desk at like 4 uh, on the 4th of January, whatever it was, and a customer phoned me. He's like, oh, Martin, thanks so much for thinking of me on, um, on New Year's Eve. And I'm like, what is he talking about? <laughs> and he's like, you yeah, know, I didn't get many messages from suppliers, but, you know, yours came in at two minutes past midnight. And, you know, I was really grateful that you were thinking about me. And essentially what it was is, like you can imagine, he's at, he's, he's at his thing. And they're all doing old land sign and then his phone dings and then it's like, oh, I owe Martin money. <laughs> so I think you have to be careful like that, is what I think. <laughs> yes, yeah. So you have to be careful like that. So let's talk about, um, let's talk about, do we talk about segmentation? We could talk about segmentation. The thing is, you have to have the data to segment by is the challenge here. So we know that if it's a sign-up form, the fewer fields there are the more signups you're going to get but the less useful it is because the less information you have to to segment them by do you have i agree and that's actually a really difficult way to segment but i also have a few challenges around whether that's the most effective way of segmenting now if you've got 
fields within your signup form, yes, that's a, a great way as long as they're going to be useful to you. I think it's interesting to explore, though, how you might be able to segment people by the way that they signed up for the list in the first place. So <clears throat> if you have sign-up forms on a website, signing up for a specific lead magnet is segmentation in itself. They're going into one list rather than another, or they're getting one tag attached rather than another. And if the if the title that you use for your lead magnets is about a specific challenge or opportunity that they have, I think that's the most eff effective segmentation because it's already qualifying them into a specific area of your business. I'll give you an example. So I have a, a an ebook called 20 Best Subject Lines. The title of that in itself helps to qualify people as being interested in my services. Because if you know what a subject line is and how it corresponds to the results that you get from your email marketing, that makes you an ideal customer for me. The suggestion that it's about subject lines rather than email marketing generally is also good because that means you've probably tried it once. You've tried it and it either hasn't worked or you're looking to improve the results that you're getting. So 20 best subject lines qualifies my audience as being relevant to my products and services, but also qualifies their experience. That's the best segmentation I can get rather than someone saying, hey, I'm interested in email marketing or I'm interested in digital marketing generally or I'm interested in marketing strategy. They've qualified themselves just by being on the list in the first place. 100%. 100%. Okay, so are you doing are you doing fancy like drip feed infusionsoft type email marketing or is it more kind of standard newsletter type stuff? Kind of which camp are you in? There's a combination of both. Um so for, for people who would join my list generally, there is a welcome sequence that does technically go over a year. The, the emails start uh, relatively um, frequent. So there'll be a couple of emails in that first week. That's not a huge number. And they get slowly, slowly more uh, infrequent, but it's designed to put them into specific categories where I can. The, for, for everybody, they will sit within a newsletter list. So they will receive what I'd call continuity emails. They're designed to just provide a touch point, make sure that I'm top of mind, provide a little bit of value on an ongoing basis. So there is a combination of the two. And when it comes to things like courses or specific sales funnels, that's when the actual automations really come into their own because you want to either push them to a product or push them out. And when I say out, I don't mean unsubscribe. I just mean to sit on the list ready for a rainy day to continue to receive newsletters. But the sales funnels, that's where the automations do really come into their own. Um, you want them to buy. And if they don't buy, you want to qualify them out and make sure that they're just receiving emails on an ongoing basis. Okay, good. Open rates. So mm. on your website, or I think you might have told us already that the open rates are to do with the subject lines and they're to do with the name. What is a good open yes. rate in your experiencing? What sort of open rates are you achieving and should people expect to achieve? I think you should be aiming for over 30%, <clears throat> which doesn't sound like very much when you think that there's then 70% of people who aren't opening. Uh, but actually, there are a number of things behind that as well. Open rates, open rates are an indication. It's not exact, an exact number or an exact percentage. For those clients who we build a list from scratch with, it isn't unheard of for us to be getting consistently every single week or every single fortnight, depending on how often, often they're sending out, to be getting 50 to 60% every single time. And I think that's a very good open rate. I think if you're getting higher than that, it probably means you're not pushing your list ever so slightly hard enough. Uh, 
or the fact that the list is so small that, you know, if you're sending to 10 people, I'd be disappointed not to get 70 or 80% open rate. Um, so yeah, I think if you aim for 30 or higher, or if you're starting from scratch, you should be getting 50 to 60%. Wow. I think that's high because, it is. yeah, well, I think the standard is somewhere between eight and 10%. Is it? Is that what they, that's what's quoted typically you can expect? It can be. I think 20 to 25 tends to be about the average that I see with uh, clients who are, um, they've already got a list. Maybe they haven't sent to it for a long time. Um, you don't have to work very hard to get 20 to 25%, which is why you should be aiming for over 30%. Yes. Um, 8 to 10%, I'd be very disappointed with. And I'd see that as mostly a symptom of cold lists, purchase data lists. Uh, and lists that maybe haven't been obtained in, in quite the wrong way, in quite the right way. I think you should certainly be getting much higher than that. Okay. Okay, good. And then how, so you're saying there's something else. So I'm saying it's the name and the subject line, but you're saying there's something about the relationship and the fact that they're expecting this is that's also driving the consistency. Well, that's what influences the the response that they have to the from name they'll see the name they'll see the subject line and they'll make a decision on whether they want to open it that decision is influenced i think in a big part by the from name because if it's something they know they've signed up for if it's a name they recognize it's a name they know like and trust then you stand a much higher chance it's why even when i work with bigger businesses i always recommend that the email comes from a person's name rather than the company's name because you want them to have a personal relationship. You want them to have a name of a person they recognize rather than a faceless organization. So that's a key thing. There are a few other things that influence the open rates. We can talk about deliverability and whether you um, whether your emails are being delivered to the inbox in the first place. Um, but for most people, that's something that you look to do to refine what you're doing as you improve it. It's probably not a conversation to have uh, if you're just starting out or if you're still exploring what you can do with email marketing. Okay, cool. And then with the name, things like gender and um, those things come into play, don't they? I've got a funny story about a name. Do you want to hear my funny story about a name, send a name? So I was teaching in London and this lady had flown in from Mexico to do the, it was a, like a Digital Marketing Institute course. And we got to the email part, we're talking about names and things. And she was selling um, investment advice, basically. She had huge lists in Central America. Um, and she was emailing these lists. And it was typically middle-aged men who have money to invest. And so when we started talking about the names and what names people might respond well to and stuff, she started laughing. And so I asked her what was so funny. And she said, oh, it's nice. You know, it's, you know we get great opens from our emails. I'm like, okay, why is that? And she says, well, I think it's because of Natalie. And I said, well, who's Natalie? And she said, well, Natalie is, sends all of the emails. And I'm like, okay, and who is Natalie? And she's like, Natalie doesn't exist. <laughs> <laughs> so basically you had yeah. this, all these Central American men going crazy for these emails from Natalie and Natalie doesn't exist. Um, so yeah, I think it's, the thing I think about email more than anything is that they, there's a steps in the process and every step in the process is an opportunity just to tweak it a little bit more to get more and more value out of it. That's kind of what I I, think. I agree. Yeah. And I, 
I, I think you make a good point there when it comes to open rates that, you know, there are plenty of industry benchmarks on there. MailChimp re publish a report every year that talks about the open rates for specific industries. I think they're mostly pointless. Um, not to, to say it was a bad question. It was a, a great question. But the only thing you should really be looking to do is improve on the open rate you get from your last campaign. If yes. you got 10% last time, aim for 12%. If you got 12% last time, well, aim for 30% ideally, but you're looking to improve what you're doing bit by bit, both in terms of open rates, in terms of click rates and engagement. But ultimately, if you're looking to drive revenue from your email campaigns, what are the results that you're actually getting that's putting money onto the bottom line? Yes. And that's it. And that's like my business is called the Effective Marketing Company. And it's because of that. There is always the opportunity just to turn the screw and make it a little bit more efficient and a little bit more effective. And that was always our approach. Um, but there are, am I right in thinking that there are issues now with open rates and iOS devices not reporting open rates or is, is that happening? Yeah, it is. So um, it came in, which is when the new iOS um, and the update essentially meant that people not an exact number. So with that in mind, yeah, you're looking to improve, but know that open rates since October have probably gone up a little bit more than they were previously. Okay. So they're looking like they're inflated now. That's, that's what it's looking like. Yeah. That's exactly it, yeah. Yeah. But I suppose all of these things are only indications anyway. You know, it's only an indication of how much might actually be going on, you know. Okay, good. So the next step in the process then, yeah. So the next step in the process is content. So you're doing educational type stuff. Is that what you're saying is? I would call it 80-20. So it is 80% education, 80% value. Um, and, you know, if for, for certain businesses, it might not even be education. It might just be interesting things, things that are going to be useful. That's the principle here is to be useful to your audience. Be a help. Be someone who is a resource that means when your email lands that they want to open it. And it's the 80% education that then earns you the right to be able to send 20% sales. And it might be that you have let's say a newsletter format where 80% of the content within that email is educational and then 20% at the bottom is promoting a new product or a new service or even an existing product or service. Or it could be that 80% of the emails that you send are educational and then you have specific launches, you have specific periods where you're sending sales emails that is maybe a little bit more aggressive because the only message within that is to drive people to make a sale, but it is more effective. And as we touched on previously, the idea with this is to test and measure. If the sales responses that you're getting aren't as high as you want them to be, it's either that you need to improve the sales message that you're sending, or you need to improve the relationship with your audience so that they're more receptive to your sales messages. 100%. I agree with that entirely. I mean, what I found was, I think the danger of giving away free content is maybe you give people everything they need. And so they don't have to buy from you. Maybe you're attack attracting freeloaders. I think there's a couple of issues with this. What I found when I started, when did I start? 2006, 2007. 
was actually a very direct sales message. And this is all our email marketing ended. I mean, it sounds like an abomination compared to yours. But all our email marketing was was basically sending this really filthy, dirty, stolen, borrowed, you know, list. Um, sales messages. Like literally there's a course happening and this is what it is and this is what it's about and it's exactly on these dates. And so subject lines were really simple. They would also qualify people out. So it would be literally, I don't know, LinkedIn marketing training, central London, 9th of February, uh, nine till two, till till one, you know. So nobody should have been opening them unless they knew exactly what it was about, and it worked. But what I found was what worked. So originally we were doing newsletters; nobody was interested. Then we just started putting out these are the next three courses that got some traction, but not very much. But when we made it literally, this is the one thing that we're offering you. This is the one opportunity you have to buy something. That's when it all clicked, and that's when it started making sense. So. What I'm asking you, I suppose, is do you have to separate the, the content, the educational stuff from the sales stuff? Or how, how do you work that? So it depends. So when I'm working with clients specifically, it depends on how, um, I want to say how aggressive they want to be. It's not the right term because it isn't aggressive. It's just that, as you say, when you're separating those messages, you do increase the chance of getting unsubscribes and spam yeah. reports. Those messages are always going to be more effective when there's only one thing for them to do. So I generally make a blend of the two. There will be promotions at the bottom of newsletter emails, but also I have launches to do. I have new products and services that I release that if I didn't do a launch that had a dedicated sales campaign of several emails, then it isn't going to get me the results that I want it to get. So I think there's a balance to be struck there. Um, but for, for clients, it depends on how close to the line they want to tread um, and ultimately how successful they want their campaigns to be. <laughs> yeah, yeah, 100%. And I think there's nothing wrong with sales messages. Yeah. I mean, I seem to have like a dozen little stories that are coming to mind. I ran a course like a half day once on email marketing. I only ever did it once. But there were these two guys at the back of the room and they wanted to say something throughout. And then at the end, they did. And their question was, how often should they send emails? Now, my standard answer was always, it depends, like the cost of sending emails is essentially unsubscribes. So basically, when the unsubscribes get to a point where it becomes uncomfortable for you, that's when you need to look at reducing the frequency. So as long as you're delivering value in the emails, then you should send them as often as possible and you'll find your optimum. And they said, oh, because we make $60,000 every time we send an email. And I'm like, okay, well, send that email every 20 minutes, you know. <laughs> and I was joking. But the point was they were, they were developing products, some sort of digital products. But they would only send an email when they had a new product to launch. And it would take them three months to build a product. So they would, I mean, they were doing fine, these two kids, I think they were, like 1920. So every three months, they'd make $60,000. And then they'd develop a new product and they'd send the email and make another $60,000. So I think the idea of frequency is really imp important. But what I said to them is, if they were getting um, open rates of 20%, then 80% of their database still didn't know that this existed. So you have to send it kind of five times with a hope to get into the 100%. So how do you feel about frequency? How often should people be sending emails? I think there's a fine line, and it also depends on your industry. I mean, I work with a number of dental practices, and for the life of me, I mean, if, if I could recommend to them that they would send to their list twice a week or every week, I'd love to, I'd get paid more, uh, but I can't because I can't honestly recommend that a dental practice should be emailing their list every week because I'll ask you now, how often would you want to hear from your dentist? 
I don't want to similarly. Yeah, yeah. I mean, how, <laughs> how much is there that's interesting? So I suppose it, it depends on how engaged your your market are with the thing, with your your list are with the thing that they're doing. If it's business, they're doing business all day, every day. If it's teeth, they might hope to be doing their teeth once every six months. You know, okay, that's a good insight. That's a really good yeah, insight. Yeah, so it depends on your industry. Um, I think generally, uh, if you're not sending at least monthly, then you might as well not bother. But ideally, you should be sending weekly and in some cases twice a week. There is a line to be struck there between how often your audience wants to hear from you, but also for your small business owners, how much time do you have to be creating content, to either be collating content from where you're putting out elsewhere, onto YouTube, on LinkedIn, onto your blog. There has to be a balance that gets struck there to make sure that you can do it consistently, not just when you're quiet, not just when you don't have much client work on, but also when you're at your absolute busiest. So it might be that you even batch up your emails. You know you've got a free couple of days, so you write your emails for the next six months. That's a great thing to do, and you know that your emails are going out every Friday morning, for example. You have to make sure that you can be consistent with it, even when you're at your busiest. And if that is only every fortnight or every month, then that's better than being inconsistent with it, where you send an email and then they don't hear from you for six months. Yes, 100%. I agree with that. Okay, we've gone for an hour and 20 minutes already. So this has been really useful, I think, because, I mean, it's, yeah, because this is a really useful practical. These are the kinds of steps. Um, so... I think we answered the questions. Um, we know you're qualified. Um, who you work with and how you add value, we've got a sense of that. How people might get better. What they should do really is just pick up the phone and call you or go visit your website um, if they want to get better. Is there anything else you want to say if people want to get better? At email marketing? I mean, there are some resources on the website as well. You, you're more than welcome to be able to go and get those. I think if you want to get better, it depends where you're at. If you haven't started damn well start right now. Even if you have a list of 10 people, it's better that those 10 people hear from you now rather than wait six months until you feel like you've hit a critical mass, like you only want to send out when you've got 100 or 1,000 people. Start now, even with those five or 10, and it means that you can be consistent and you can be building your list constantly. You want to build the list of people who recognize your name when it lands in their inbox, serve that list with high quality educational information, and then extract the opportunities. Let the cream rise to the top for where you can make sales. 100% I'm with you. And don't do what I do, which is sit on a list for two years and then pay a subscription to have that list hosted and then not get any value from it whatsoever. Okay, good. And I would, um, yeah, do email marketing because it's really good. I mean, it's and it's insane. how And it's not going away. It's not dying. It's not anything. If anything, I think the opportunity for email marketing is getting better the less people do it, you know, so the more time moves on and people get picked up by these you know, Facebook messengers or bots or whatever it is, that's good for you. It's, there's more opportunity. Okay, good. Only two questions remaining. So the last question is, uh, what do you recommend that people read? You've written two books. I will list those. You don't have to tell us to read those. It's okay. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. So definitely read those. I'd also recommend reading. Uh, there's a book called Email Persuasion by Ian Brody. Um, he released his book before I did, but it is a very, very good book when it comes to email marketing and how you can use it effectively. Um, that's certainly one that I would recommend. I'd also recommend reading. There's um, a book about LinkedIn marketing. Uh, I think it's called LinkedIn Bound by Sam Rathling. She's one of the people I recommend you speak to, in fact, uh, which is a very good book. I think whether even if you're a starter with LinkedIn 
or even if you're reasonably advanced with it, it's a good book to understand how you can use it effectively for lead generation and for making sales. Fantastic. And then most people will recommend that I speak to, to two people at least. So you're saying, was it Lynn, somebody? Uh, Sam Ratheling. Sam Ratheling. Yeah, so she specializes in LinkedIn, is very good. Um, I'd also recommend you speak to Anthony Steers. So Anthony's someone that I work with a fair bit. Um, I've shared the stage with him on a number of occasions. I think what we do dovetails reasonably well. Now, I mentioned about when you're receiving unsolicited phone calls. He's someone who helps you to use the phone to get business, to generate leads, but in the right kind of way so that you aren't just interrupting someone's day and uh, becoming a nuisance, but actually how to use the phone to make sales in a really good way. So we work together on a number of things because the two dovetail quite nicely. I always recommend that if people are feeling like they want to go out and find data lists, the best thing to do is to probably call those people and get permission to send them an email or send them something of value. And he calls it a, a test drive where you're giving someone an opportunity to experience your business without actually parting with any money. So, yeah, the two things dovetail really nicely. He's a great guy and a great speaker. And, uh, yeah, I think he'd be great to have a chat to and, and to be challenged by you too, Martin. Has it been too challenging? I have been particularly challenging today, I have to tell you. Hey, it is absolutely fine. Uh, do you know what I think is, I think as experts, I think if you go out there and you want to put your message across, you have some expertise, I think you should be able to have that expertise stand up to challenging questions, whether it be from the stage, whether it be in video interviews like this on podcasts, whatever it might be, your expertise should stand up to any challenging questions. It so really should. More than more. Good. Thank you very much. And what I kind of think about it is as speakers and as marketers, we kind of build our presentation. Do you know what I mean? So we build this veneer of this is the way we present. And what I hope to do with these conversations is just dig a little bit deeper, maybe, to, because I think that's where the real value is, you know, and you've delivered loads of value. This has been the most practical of all of these conversations of literally how you go about doing this through the steps. So, man, thank you so much for your time. I've thoroughly enjoyed this. Um, about these people, um, like what works best is what Warren did, where he sets up like a little LinkedIn um, introduction. Might you be able to do something like that for me? Would that be okay? Yeah, happy to. Okay, you're an absolute legend. Okay, cool. Then we are done. Thank you so much for your time, man. What we will do is we'll say goodbye now for the few people who might actually see this, and then I'll stop recording. We'll say goodbye like normal human beings. But, man, I have thoroughly enjoyed this. This has been really useful. I think, I think what I'm feeling now is the absolute authority that you've brought to this conversation. Do you know what I mean? Absolutely no nonsense. I've brought all the nonsense. And you have just <laughs> batted it away perfectly calmly. Like, I accused you of, like, relying on this old man's technology. There's no two ways about it. People trust email. People like email. Everyone's got an email app on their phone when they receive it. You know, everyone has an email inbox. Like, this is the way that people receive a significant amount, like nobody ever received any really important business news through Facebook Messenger or through LinkedIn Messenger or through, you know, so this is the way that people are communicating. And it's no surprise to me that it's not going away. It's not dying. It is probably the most effective form of direct marketing. And that's why all of these other platforms are emulating it, you know, building their own messengers. It's why Facebook went out and bought WhatsApp, you know, because direct marketing is what works. 
having direct conversations with your prospective customers and your customers works. Of course it does. Okay, good. I got carried away then. <laughs> <laughs> Man, I have thoroughly enjoyed this. Thank you so much for your time. And um, maybe in five, six months, you'll hear from me again and I might badge you about for some more information about how people build um, credibility through email marketing. That'd be great. Mine has been an absolute pleasure. Thank you. You're a star. Thanks, man.